Hi, everyone. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to give a quick shout out to our awesome sponsors at Zeewee. You know, our furry pals are carnivores, and Zeewee gets that. Their peak prey recipes are spot on with what they would choose in the wild. We're talking real meat, organs, fish, and even green mussels. Zeewee's been all about peak nutrition since 2002. Ethical, sustainable, and packed with only the purest ingredients from New Zealand. If you want your pet munching on what they're biologically designed to thrive on, check out Zeewee. And for 20% off, feel free to put in our discount code, CanonOptima20. What the dog doing? Yeah, congrats on that, brother. Thanks, thanks. I'm really excited about it. I really, so far, have been having a ton of conversations with different trainers that are active in extreme behavior. And uh, break away from the standard dog trainer conversation where it's, uh, here's what I know, what do you know, this is what I agree with, what do you agree with? And instead of a meeting of the minds, it's like unpacking the trainer in front of you and yeah. asking pointed questions around them and how they started and what their passions are and their, their trial and errors and really trying to get a sense for their style, their priorities and finding something that's unique about them so that we can celebrate the differences in the industry as opposed to bicker about them. Oh, but then what would people argue about? <laughs> it's I think that as the sampling grows and talking from trainer to trainer, I think that's where people are going to start to see the bigger picture yeah. because with with Bleaker's session, it was pretty cool because we unpacked some really cool decompression protocols that she does for really extreme cases in her process where she literally puts them through like a like a sensory deficit chamber so that they yeah. can decompress during a process. And she had this extremely fascinating protocol for dogs that have predatory drift yeah where she uses different toys of different values gets the game going gets the engagement going and then invites a lure course in with real skin with real like squirrel skin yeah yeah, yeah. i ended up having to pick up some dogs yesterday so i listened to part of it it was good so that's the essence of what it's about is that there's a roadmap to all of us there are dogs that have led to what we know and what we can do and those dogs inevitably will dictate the differences in us the problems that we've had to solve in the past and that kind of creates our path so to speak so that's what it's all about is just to start off with a little bit about you and how you started what propelled you to the behavior realm why you love it so much and then we can yeah. kind of get into your process a little bit if you're okay with that yeah for sure i ended up moving to a property that had an old kennel that hadn't been used in a long time. So we bought this property. And when we moved here, I was just volunteering with the rescue as a driver and stuff. And I went, oh, we can foster dogs. And I ended up very quickly ending up fostering a lot of behavior cases. And then that kind of turned into, I was doing a lot of behavior stuff and I was doing a lot of dog stuff. And then at, like my regular job, I was starting to help other people with their dogs because they'd be like, hey, she knows about dogs. And then that kind of quickly turned into not just helping like a coworker, but helping their brothers, uncles, cousins, neighbors dog. And then and so that kind of I was like, OK, this could be like a side gig type of thing. And then that quickly spiraled into I was doing as many hours a week that like I was doing training full time and I was doing my other job full time. So then I went, I do have this building. I could try and get it up and running again. And I had to make a call between one or the other. So I figured I would try this. And from there, because I started with rescue where I was working behavior cases anyway, that was the start. So I didn't start at puppies. I just started working in behavior and it just went from regular kind of 
behaviorish problems to what we call significant behavior. And it just kept escalating from there. So I ended up going, yes, I'll make the decision to do just training. I left my other job and then it just exploded. It just kept going because there is no lack of dogs that have significant behavior problems. Yeah, it got really busy really quickly. And then and then we were like, okay, we'll expand a little more. And then COVID hit. So it got busier. <laughs> um, yeah. And then it came with a whole host of new problems. Yeah. And now we're at the point where, oh, now we're tired. Now we're tired. <laughs> but yeah. How did you get linked up with Rescue in the first place? Did you have friends? I know that you're a starch supporter of a sanctuary nearby. I've followed your social media enough to know that, but how, what pushed you into the rescue realm initially? I got a dog. One of the first dogs I got as a, as an adult was from the rescue. We were just like, Hey, we, uh, I got my boyfriend. He had a dog. We decided we would get a second dog. We got a dog from that rescue and I was always into dogs and I specifically wanted to compete in sports and things. But quite separately, just because I really like dogs and I couldn't get more than the dogs I had then because I had a very time consuming job. I went, okay, cool. I'll help out. I can do driving. I can work random hours. That's totally fine. And we had gotten a dog from them. They were close. I was looking for something to do. That worked out well. And then once we moved, that was just a natural progression. I was like, I like dogs. I like doing stuff with dogs. want to do more with dogs. Here we go. And then, yeah, so that was just a byproduct of oh I've interacted with this rescue before I need stuff to do on my days off I could volunteer I could drive I am fairly confident with dogs it's okay and then that just escalated so yeah wow so what was the sounds like trial by fire with hey this person knows dogs word of mouth and you're already in the behavior realm at that point yeah where did you draw the wealth of your knowledge from? What was your route? I am not very good at any type of video learning. That's, that's as you may have gotten from this entire last 20 minutes of trying to get me to do a video thing. I'm not super good at that, but I am, I'm a big reader and I'm also, I am very big on consuming as much as I can, just if it's not a video, like an online course format type of thing, uh, as long as there's subtitles and good but I'm big on the reading. I'm big on going to seminars, listening. Before the pandemic, I would go to places, learn things. I had a mentor from the rescue. She taught me a ton. So I really like learning hands-on. I really like watching and learning, like watching someone do stuff and learn. So that worked out really well for me because I just, I had the time to learn and I had the desire to learn so I can go find information if I'm like, okay, I feel like I'm lacking this. And I love going to find that information. Sometimes I'm a little limited in how I can consume it, but at, I that's a problem I can overcome. Everything's written somewhere. So yeah, yeah, I did a lot of kind of, yes, there was a lot of trial by fire. There was also a lot of, I got to watch her work a lot of dogs. I got to work a lot of dogs under her. I got to read a lot, see a lot, go to seminars. So that worked out really well. And for the first few years, I was a big fan of, I will say, I am very new. Yes, I will take this situation you have. Yes, I will work with your dog, but please understand I'm new. I'm not sure if I'm going to do a great job of this. So I'm going to charge you basically nothing. And if I can do it at all, I see. Yeah, I'm going to charge you nothing. And then I will pass you on to someone who I know can. 
because at the other because for the first two years I was also I had a normal job this was just a thing I was really interested in this was my hobby this was great so if I was like cool if you don't mind me using your dog to learn awesome it's not going to be thousands of dollars I don't care what industry standard is I'm not providing industry standard work I've never worked with whatever your issue is so I would love the chance to learn on your dog I will charge you nothing if you give me a chance and right. I did that for a long time. I charged maybe $25 an hour for things I knew for maybe the first year just because I really liked working dogs. And I liked being like, hey, let's see if I can do this better and better. And for things that I'd never touched before, I was like, I'll do it for free. Just let me learn. So why? I really liked dogs. I really liked learning about dogs. I've always been super into dogs. And it was just, this was my hobby until it became so time consuming that it was choose this and actually get paid for this or mm. stick with my other job and have to step back from the thing I'm really enjoying doing. So would you, would you say it's the problem solving piece to it that excites you most? If you're thrown into obedience, it's very, there's obviously observation that goes into it, but at yeah. some place it's very formulaic, but with extreme yes. behavior, it's like a jigsaw puzzle with each dog. Very much. Yeah. I like the problem solving aspect. I like that every one of them is unique. I like that there is, it, once you start going from behavior to significant behavior, which I think is your version of extreme behavior, we, we use the term significant behavior. Within that realm, there's not a lot of, to me, black and white, mm -hmm. because dependent on that dog, in one situation, your solution can be this. But just by the fa fact that the dog lives in a different way or the owner has a different skill set, your solution has to be something completely different. If the owner cannot perform the solution you have come up with or live in such a way that solution is possible then you have to come up with a different solution. And that I quite like. So yeah, I think it's the problem solving thing. I really like problem solving. It's a thing. <laughs> what would you say your biggest unlock was early on? I know like in the beginning, there's, I think for every trainer, there's a massive amount of insecurity, grasping things, mm -hmm. communicating, achieving things. But then there's this place where some, most trainers get into a groove. They found some sort of ability that they have or something that they see and the processes that they're imposing. What would you say your first biggest unlock was in behavior? I think it was the first time somebody was like, hey, it was another trainer that said, what do you mean you did that? And I was like, the dog had X and X behavior, this thing. And I remember, I, I don't even really remember most of the conversation. I remember me saying what it was and what the problems the dog had and them going, what do you mean you worked? Like, what, what do you mean you worked through that? That's just like, you're done. Like, you don't do that. Um, like that, we just use it or we rehome it or we don't touch that. And I went, well, no, you can train that. Like you can train through this. You just have to, you have to set it up. You have to know what you're doing and you have to work the dog through several different things. You have to teach the dog a lot of stuff, but it is doable. First time somebody from the industry went, what do you mean? And genuinely questioned and was like surprised that was a thing that happened. Because I don't talk to a lot of other people in the industry. I talked to my mentor who has been doing this 25 years longer than me. And I just... I lived rurally. I had another job that was very full-time. I didn't talk to a lot of people in the industry. So when I was just like working in the woods by myself and I'd call my mentor who has 25 years experience and we would throw stuff against each other and be like, hey, I'd say this and she'd say, oh, maybe you should try this. Like we'd pinball stuff. But then the first time I talked to just like someone random that owned a company was at a seminar. And I was like, you know, you can just do this and this. And the first time they went, what do you mean? Was when I went, oh, maybe I actually do know some things that that could be like useful that I genuinely was like, oh, I don't know as much as my mentors. 
I have a job. We're good. This is just, this is the thing I enjoy doing. And the first time somebody just looked at me and was like, what do you mean? And I had to yeah. explain myself and teach someone something that, w- that I had already thought, oh, you're in the industry. Of course you would know this. That was the first time I went, oh, okay, maybe this is actually something that could be a career. Or I think that was actually the first time I was like, maybe I should charge people for this. Like, yeah, it was pretty early where I was like, I think I was still doing like my $25 if I have to drive to you kind of thing. And I remember just thinking in my head, what do you mean you don't know this? And that was when I went, oh, what I do isn't what all the other companies do. I thought all I thought everybody did that. And because my mentor does that. And I was like, okay, everybody just does this. And it turns out that was not accurate. <laughs> it reminds me of like the 1980s action films, like every Jean-Claude Van Damme film where he's got to go out into the mountains and train with his sensei and do the whole training montage yeah. to prepare. <laughs> yeah. I just thought we were doing normal stuff. And she was like, no, actually, people don't touch those dogs. And I was like, oh. Yeah. What her version of a really nice dog is she has dogs that have some fairly significant problems. There's a reason they're sanctuary animals. And that was my, oh, if they're like sanctuary level, they're harder to work with, but that's okay. And I was working with dogs that were like not quite sanctuary level. And meanwhile, what we consider to be that is things that some people won't touch with a 10 foot pole. And that's different. That's I didn't realize that. That was just where we started because she was like, here, you want to try this? And I was like, sure. She's lying. I was like, hey, I want to try this. Can you find me a dog that has this? And she did. And wow. (laughs) That's really interesting. The time I started meeting other trainers and I realized that most people do like puppy group classes, I was like, I'll never know. Yeah, no, I can just hearing that, I can see how that would be an insane amount of experience early on. Not just the quantity of dogs, the access yeah. to a myriad of issues, yeah. but the the below and above threshold of savable versus unsavable. And you being able to draw a line there and have a mentor that was actually training and, tra- and attempting to rehabilitate dogs in yeah. a sanctuary. That is like the CIA of behavior. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's where all the forgotten dogs go to live out the remaining life because of X, Y, and Z that they did. Yeah. Wow. They're not too bad. <laughs> Just don't go in the pen. And I'm like, okay, sounds good. <laughs> I have a big feeling about when people say they work with feral dogs because at one point I said I would like experience with ferals and she brought me feral dogs and they were feral. So when people go, hey, I'm working with feral dogs, and it is a dog in their house that they have a leash on. I'm like, that's not it, bro. Like when I go, okay, cool. I said, I need, bring me something fun with pointy ears. And she brought me a wolf cross and a live trap. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. And she was like, here's this live trap. Have a good day. And I was like, sounds good. But so that's when people are like, oh, I work with ferals. And they mean it's a nervous dog in their house that hasn't had a huge amount of interaction with people. And then I started meeting other trainers that do other things. And they were describing dogs that had a growl or a snap as a dog that has attacked someone. And I was like, what? No. At that point, I was taking like six to eight fosters at a time, almost all of which had pretty decent behavior problems. And I was half of the dogs in here have killed other dogs. What do you mean growling at a dog is aggression? As it killed it, it's fine. I just was like, that's not a problem. 
So that was where I started with this viewpoint of these things aren't big problems, they're doable. And then by the time I realized that was a different viewpoint was a bit further in than probably it should have been. And uh, yeah, and then I had to make a decision between doing this a lot or doing it as a hobby and stepping back a bit because it was taking quite a lot of time. So I went, let's do this full time forever and just never, ever take a day off again. It works out well. Yes. So let me ask you, uh, because you've had such a tremendous access of dogs that have checkered pasts, right? I haven't had the same access. with. Obviously, I'm in the rescue realm too. We have tons of approved partners that come in and bring us their dogs. I worked maybe five or six dogs that have killed a dog, but in that small spectrum i've also identified dogs that killed a dog based on circumstance and weight disparity this is the thing is a ton of them for me a ton of them are like ah he got lucky on that one like he won because he big right we say there's a dog coming in two weeks here yeah it's killed another dog but that was yes okay it's attacked quite a few other dogs but in this case it killed it the only reason this the second dog died was because yes there was quite a large size difference it seems case more often than not every time a rescue calls me and says yeah it resulted the dog that's here now it resulted in an amputation yeah and it was a for the last two or three dogs it's a recurring theme of smaller dogs provoking this dog while it's a puppy and into adolescence, maybe resource guarding areas or things. And then this dog fully maturing and deciding to, yeah. what would you say the change in protocol is for a circumstance where a dog is fighting due to circumstance, maybe gotten into a rhythm with it because of the rehearsal comparative to dogs that are hitting the F it button due to some brain chemistry and or physiological drivers. The first thing I'm going to look at, is that an own dog already or is that a rescue dog? If that is a dog that is in a rescue versus that is a dog that is in someone's home, those are already going to be very different, right? Because there there's a lot of dogs that come to rescue here that are what are known as community dogs. So they live in a community, typically more north of here, and here is pretty north. And a lot of those dogs will, they will fight other dogs and that's, they will throw down because that is the life in which they are living and that is okay, right? So they just have experience with that lifestyle. And if you give them any other opportunity, will they choose differently or will they go, hey, this is actually how I was raised. This is the only thing I know. So yes, we throw down. This is how we live life. First, I'm like, if the dog is coming from a rescue, that I think needs to be asked. I'm like, is this dog just throwing down because that's the situation it's in or is it literally just it's now four it's been pack attacking with its group forever this is what happens and it's now been a part of many attacks that's a bit of a different scenario because i'm also like that dog is coming into a rescue and i don't know what the situation is where you are right now but right here where i am it is so overloaded not even puppies are getting if you're coming in having killed three dogs, I, I nope. Like I'm uh, right now, there is no place to put you. There, it doesn't exist, right? If you're an owned dog, that changes quite a bit. But my thing always, any form of training protocol, I come on. So if I'm talking to a rescue, I'm going to talk about assessment. I'm going to talk about do we need to look at how we're going to assess that, and based on that assessment, we can make a plan. But first, I think that needs to be assessed. The second, you can't just take it as this dog attacked a dog. Have a good day. I think you need to assess that in person. You need to see what drove it. You need to see the age. You need to see if there's history. 
But when we're talking about an owned dog, the first thing that's going to come in is management. I, if there's a dog that is actually going to be like, I see a dog and I'm just, I'm here to fight. I am here to throw down. The first thing that, the first thing in either scenario is going to be management. I am a big believer in management is not a full solution, but I am a big believer that if you can begin to manage a situation, you can lessen the reoccurrence of that situation and then train through it. But if you fail to manage that situation with a dog that is willing to throw down and kill another dog at any point in time, if you see it, you cannot just rely on training, but you also can't rely on, hey, I'm going to wait two, three, four months until that training is effective enough. Because I'm like, if at any point in time that dog is willing to see another dog or have access to another dog, it just goes. Management is what's going to save your ass. That takes months and months to do. And man, and in, with a dog like that, you cannot just have training and you cannot just have management. You have to have both. You have to have management and training working in conjunction all the time. Because if one fails, the other will take place. If one, if management fails, training will take place. But you have to, ha- at that point in time, when you have a dog that for real will go, you can't rely on one or the other. You have to put both into place and you have to put both into place long term. What it sounds like is the your interpretation of management would be like putting the bumper rails on when you're going bowling to avoid the gutter yeah. balls trying to get the highest score possible. Yeah, I'm big into safety protocols and I'm big into management protocols that you can use and that can be effective in long term while training takes place. I'm also a big believer in proper progressions through training, which I think management assists. But when we're talking about a dog that'll be like, hey, it's killed another dog. The number of times that I have had people come in and been like, I brought my dog to this trainer and they wanted to see how it would interact with the dog. They wanted to see. I'm like, I don't need to see it. It's happened once. This dog has bit four people. This dog has killed a dog. This I don't need to give it a chance to see if the training has taken place. I know what it will do. It has proven time and time again it will try and do this. We need to trust in what the dog has told us many times over, and we need to start managing it from there so that we can train it from there. But the amount of times that people come in with a dog with significant behavior issues, and they're like, do you want to bring a dog in so you can see? Do you want to pet him so that you can see if he goes after you? I'm like, no, he's bit six people. I know he'll bite me. Like, you've just told me six different times, and you're getting charged by the police. I know he'll do it. So I'm a big believer in management from the get-go because I don't need to put that dog in a situation where they're adding to their bite count. I see. It's interesting because I would think at the assessment piece, because for me, I think I'm similar to you. The problem solving is the biggest passion point for me. Like I mm-hmm. like to, I, I'm quite, I'm actually quite the opposite in terms of my process. I will pose as a normal person and slightly start increasing peculiar behaviors and look for what I would deem conflict seeking versus maybe something a little bit more movement based, predatory, hurting instincts. Mm-hmm. On front, I've got a host of helper dogs that present differently so that when mm-hmm. the dog doesn't react to one dog versus the other, I have a sense for why it might be happening. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting. So, with your management protocols up front to ensure that the dog does not have an opportunity to rehearse it, it's a new mm-hmm. sheriff in town, whatever that rehearsal was before, whatever the most recent event was, that mm-hmm. stopped. Where does your process begin typically? I start at zero. The other thing is where I see people start training is not zero. Where I see people start training 
is that they have this belief that the dog has existing knowledge. And I'm like, I'm first off, I'm never going to trust in the fact that the dog might not go. I think it will go. The second thing is I'm not going to trust that the dog knows anything. I'm going to build from the ground up. And I build or rebuild or clarify because a lot of times there's confusion and there's conflict and the dog has seen four different trainers. The dog is very confused anyway. The dog is in a high state of arousal, but then they don't know how to deal with arousal. I'm like, okay, whether or not the dog is in a state of arousal or not because it wants to kill a dog or hurt a person or whether or not it's in a state of arousal because you have a ball it doesn't know how to regulate itself in a state of arousal. So let's, from the very, very beginning, start teaching this dog how to think. And once we've taught it some basic skill sets, how to think, how to manage itself and self-regulate, then I can start putting it in very minor states of arousal and seeing if it can handle that. Because if it can't handle itself in a state of arousal around a ball, and I have this proven history of it cannot handle itself in a state of arousal around a human or a person... How am I supposed to expect that dog to make good choices if it doesn't know how to, if it doesn't know how to handle itself in a state of arousal or a food or a bowl? I can't expect it to make better choices than the choice it's already proven it will make five, six, seven times. So I put the dog in a state of management and I immediately start from from ground zero. I my whole program is built on building a ton of engagement and impulse control. And once I've built a ton of engagement and impulse control, then beginning to increase and, and reintroduce all of these things that might cause arousal in the dog, might cause that they're fear aggressive. Okay, so it might be something that they're super excited about and something they're a little bit scared about. And if they can hold themselves together in a massive state of excitement, they can probably hold themselves together in a state of minor fear. But I can't train in a state of fear. So I just put the dog in a state of, okay, once you have these building blocks, these concepts of engagement and impulse control, once you know how to work yourself through these things and you know what will help you work through these things, then I give you access to minor things. Then I give you access to bigger things. Then I give you access to the things that you've made bad choices around before. But not only have I taught you better choices, I've had you practice them in lower states of arousal. And I've had you practice lowering your own arousal because self-regulation is a thing that is not taught a lot. By the time I go, hey, I'm going to reintroduce you to working with dogs, they're typically like, oh, I know how to think around this. It's fine. So how do you help them with the regulation piece? Are you cranking them and calming them? Are you training them at high states? No, I try. God. So up until like they make a, a an incredibly poor and oftentimes it has to be dangerous for me to consider correcting it until they make a dangerous choice. I'm not correcting it. You can, make a, you can make a wrong choice because the other thing is I work with a lot of dogs that they're not making choices. They're reacting. They're seeing a stimulus and their brain goes, do this. It's not like they're choosing an action. They're a dog. They see a rabbit and they go. That's not a choice. That's their brain doing dog brain things, kicking in overdrive, chasing a rabbit, right? What I want them to do is be able to slow themselves down and make a choice and choose an action versus, ah, react. Once I teach them a shit ton of engagement and a shit ton of baseline impulse control, that's when I start to go, okay, cool. I'm now, once I've taught you these things, I'm going to give you minor choices around minor amounts of stimulus. Any choice that is not dangerous is right because some dogs need to learn impulse controls, but some dogs need to learn how to make choices. 
some dogs need to learn that there is more than one option around things. They do those really fast dogs. They literally just do the first thing that comes to their head. So if they're only taught one way to react to something, that's also not helpful for me because they might not, they might be in a situation where that choice isn't available. So some people with the cranking like to do, hey, the dog sees a stimulus and the only thing it's allowed to do is sit. Sometimes maybe it's in a situation where it can't sit. It's an unstable surface, whatever. So the first thing I do is I actually get a dog to learn engagement and impulse control. And then I also make a point to teach them to make a choice. And I teach them that not every choice is the best choice in the world, but not every other choice is wrong. They can choose to look at me. They can choose to sit. They can choose to stare at it, but not engage. They can't make a dangerous choice, but they need to learn that making choices is acceptable because in the past, all of their actions have been, you've said, no, that's not correct. You killed the dog. No, because their actions were dangerous. I'm trying to unpack this a little bit in my brain. You're putting in the impulse control. I'd like to talk about your impulse control exercises, what's your go-to. Absolutely. And it, it sounds like you're moving more into a free shaping and I'm, I'm not, I'm trying to avoid terms, but you're moving into a space when you add the dog back or the trigger back yeah. into where you're marking and rewarding choices as opposed to responses and alternative behaviors. Yeah, so, I basically free shape behavior. So talk to me about, give me some of your go-to. So let's say I got, you know, let's do a, let's do like a, a pretend case study. Bully that's yodeling and screaming the second that it sees a dog, maybe movement base, who cares? And it starts ramping left and right and just letting out all that stimulation and it can't think and it can't hear while yeah, so it's the, doing that. Yeah. So the first thing is I'm like, so first off, the ish, is the issue, hey, the dog is dog aggressive. Honestly, I don't care. I'm like, cool. Some dogs fight dogs. I have no problem with that. I'm like, live your life, bro. The problem I have is that the dog can't think. So this is part of the reason why I think I, I am okay with some of the more significant of the behaviors is because I'm actually totally okay with that. I find dogs that are dog aggressive totally acceptable. I don't find it acceptable dependent on how they live. So I'm like, in that situation, I don't think that the dog being dog aggressive is a problem. I think the fact that the dog is so thrown by the presence of another dog that it cannot think, I find that to be the problem. So I'm like, that's the thing I care about. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to train without a dog present because I'm like, you can't, you don't, nobody teaches CPR on someone having a heart attack. You don't want to teach under pressure. That's not really a great learning system for any creature. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to be like, cool, we're going to teach engagement. We're going to work the shit out of engagement. That's lovely. The second thing, yes, I want to teach engagement, which to me is not eye contact. That is 5% of engagement. That's not engagement. Engagement is not only interest in the handler, but sustained interest that is functional in the face of a competing motivator. So if you do not have sustained functional interest in a handler, that can be functional in the in a competing motivator. I also want to use teaching engagement because it's a very simple thing to teach as the groundwork for a communication system because most people have a very poor communication system with their dog. They're very conflicted. They're very verbal. Dogs aren't verbal. It's a whole thing. So I want to use that very simple thing to start teaching the dog like a very simple marker system. More often than not, I want to teach them specifically that their behavior directly affects a consequence. So if they do the thing, they get the stuff. Because frequently when I see dogs, if they do the thing, a myriad of things happens. They do the thing, the dog goes off. They do the thing, they pull the owner. They do the thing, sometimes they get a cookie. They do the thing, they do 14 other things, and then someone rewards or corrects it. Most of them are so confused by the time I see them that they don't know 
which way's up. So first I want to get the confusion out of the way because I cannot work with a dog that is already not thinking around a stimulus until it has a, a solid communication system. If I don't have a solid communication system and I don't have the dog understanding some basic concepts, we might as well be yelling at each other in different languages, right? The second thing I'm going to do is build a boatload of impulse control. When I start teaching impulse control, I want to teach impulse control in the frame of your behavior directly affects how I interact with you. If I, you're on a tie back and you're jumping, leaping, throwing, you update, oh my God, hi, you're here. Then I'm just going to wait back here. If you calm down, it's like a game of hot and cold. Then I'm going to come in. I'm going to try and train with you. If you jump up on me, I'm going to back up. But the thing is, I don't want to be there to try and correct. And I don't want to be there to try and go, hey, sit, because that's micromanaging behavior. I need the dog to figure it out. So if the dog is on a tie back and I'm standing back here. That's smart. Yeah, we call it structured interaction. So we put dogs on tie backs. And if the dog is going absolutely nuts, the thing is, I never want a human to be the precipitator of a behavior. So if the human is necessary for the behavior to occur in the first place, then the dog does not understand the behavior. So if you walk up to a person and the dog wants to jump on the person and you're continuing, you have to say sit, then the dog is not coming up with sit and I see a person. If the dog is in a kennel and it's jumping at the door and you're going, no, down, no, down, the dog is not coming up with that. So the dog is not doing the thinking. I'm big on the thinking. And how am I supposed to expect you to think when you see a dog, if you're dog aggressive, when you can't even think because I'm standing in front of you with your own kibble, right? I really love this. What you're saying is your obedience program, because there's there's a million ways to skin the cat. Some people are yeah. very much motivation and teaching dogs a dance, right? Yeah. A m- maneuver. And the dog yeah. is inevitably responding to these languages and performing mm. these dances. But immediately you're setting the stage with choice, making decisions, mm. understanding, but the dog is clocking and Thank choosing, and listening yeah. to you and making choices as opposed yeah. to following your cues. Yeah. That feeds into impulse control, which sounds to me like just raising the criteria and choice against excitability and the dog having to figure out how to get this language back on yes. and fighting its own whatever issues are going on there, whether it's yeah. fear, whether it's Im- uh, impulse issues. This is really awesome because there's a streamline with mm. typically, I'll be honest with you, like a lot of the protocols that dog trainers follow their protocols, they sit in these silos. But what you're yeah. talking about is a perfect transition from, I need you to think, I need you to make mm. good choices, you to pay attention to me. Mm-hmm. And then I need you to do it even when you're excited and I'm the most important thing. And I mm. and quite literally are the most important thing in this process. And they're in your care and holy crap, she's back. This is my favorite yeah. part of the day. I'm the most important part of the process, but I'm also a part of the process that has no pressure. So I consider the use of pressure to be really, like, I I don't think it's fully understood. So the thing is, if you're my client and you're holding your dog and I'm trying to teach structured interaction, but someone's holding the leash or I'm holding the leash, just the act of putting a human in that spot adds pressure. If I did this with a dog in the kennel, the dog would be contained. That's more pressure. This is the way that I have found that provides the least amount of pressure to the dog still while putting the dog in a position that it has the most amount of control over with no consequences. So the most that the consequence of this is like the dog decides, hey, I'm not going to participate. I'm like, okay, I'll come back. later. Like, I'll just walk 10 feet that way. I'll wait five minutes. I'll come back. But if you are wicked scared, no one can get bit. If you are wicked aggressive, no one can get bit. If you are super overexcited, I can wait you out because no one's going to get tired holding the leash back, right? 
And the other thing is there's nothing that can then control that environment because you'll have an owner hold the leash. They'll get pulled. They'll be fine and fine. And then the, the dog will just dart to the side. They'll get pulled a foot out. So what did the dog just learn? Ah, be smart about how I pull, right? The wall doesn't get tired, right? So I clip them in and I go, cool. The first, the one of the things that I find that dogs have a massive confusion about is like their relationship between behavior and how that affects their environment, how that affects a consequence, right? I don't want pressure to affect that at this choice. I'm trying to remove all forms of pressure so that the dog can make good choices when there's no pressure. And then I can start increasing pressure as well as stimulus, as well as difficulty. You're, what you're also doing, first mm -hmm. and foremost, that pattern of predictability and you moving yes. in and moving out is a one size fits all for mm -hmm. a dog and an excitable dog yes. both of those dogs are floating into your cadence right yes. one is becoming more confident and secure the other one is slowing down and they're you're bringing both dogs in line with starting the process by adding the stimulus it's brilliant it's brilliant yeah. instead of, this is a fearful dog here's what i do with fearful dogs this is an excitable dog here's what i do yeah. with excitable dogs the way that you set the stage brings both dogs in perfect transition for the process. It's that's yeah. it's genius. So this is the thing is I also I'm not just yes, I'm going to do this with a dog that's showing significant behavior, but I'm also going to do this with any dog ever. I start every dog by teaching them how to think. So the yeah. first thing I want them to learn how to do is learn that their behavior directly affects my behavior. So if you go to do something, I will either move back or move forward, right? But you're not going to learn that by most dogs learn that when they go to bite someone, the person moves back. Most dogs learn that when they jump on someone, they can keep jumping. Right? The first thing I want to do is teach them that their behavior affects me and my behavior and how I interact with them. But that it's very consequence free. There's literally just if you calm down in any way. And this is the thing is I teach sit. Don't worry. But I have a dog who was like three weeks in last week. And I was like, did we teach you sit? I don't know. It's here for other issues. I don't care about sit. If you make the choice to sit, awesome. But if you are lunging, lunging, spinning, I'm barking, oh my God, I'm just like a teenage shepherd and I'm crazy excited. And you just stop. You just stand there. You just choose to do nothing. I'm going to walk on in. You freak out again. I can instantly stop. You keep freaking out. I can back up. So it's a very minor reward. They've understood that their behavior has caused a change. But then they freak out again, so the behavior is instantly stopped, and they understand, oh, my behavior caused another change. Okay. And it's a very minor thing, because when we start adding food and toys and stuff, we start upping the arousal. These dogs can't think in forms of arousal, and most of the dogs I work with in a form of arousal make really bad choices, not moderate choices. They make really shitty ones. So I'm like, okay, I want you to understand this is a very minor choice. You chose to stop moving. I came in. You chose to move again. I moved back. So as they learn to make choices, I don't need them to make the best choice in the world. I don't need them to sit and be perfect. That can come later. If they're used to making choices and being rewarded for a better and better choice, they will naturally start making a better and better choice as they learn better and better things. But I cannot expect a dog that cannot even think to think not only what is the right choice, how do I make this choice, and can I pick the best choice? No, first I need to teach you how to think. First I need to teach you how to make a choice. And I need to teach you that making any choice in a scenario is better than just simply reacting. So if you have any choice whatsoever, boom, I'm suddenly game. But if you start losing your ever-loving shit again, I'm going to back up.
Right. So, so the antithesis of how any trainer is going to approach an extreme case. Yeah, that's why like, I can't watch a lot of stuff online. Yeah, but but there's a competitive advantage there too, though, right? Because mm. the industry does a lot of stuff one way, and you come in, and it's completely on the other end of the football field in terms of what yeah. the dog's experience trainer. Then you have a blank slate in your process mm -hmm. versus what trainers have to do is like uncondition and recondition. I have an entire, like the entirety of the process I, I've built, I, I call de-escalation focused training programs. From the very beginning, I start with a form of management because I, one of the things they tell everybody is the, a reaction will, is like a goldfish. It will grow to the size of its containment. At the very beginning, your management is 100% of your containment, right? That is responsible. You have a leash, you have a crate, like that is responsible for 100% of the containment that you can grow that reaction. If your management sucks, that reaction can be really big. And if you have a dog that's proven it's bit six people, you don't want to, you don't need that reaction to grow as big as it can be. You know, it can be big. So as training takes over, part of that containment is yes, management is in place, but the containment is actually in the dog. It's the training. Your re as you work with that dog, you grow your training enough that you can lose some of your management, but you're always in a point where there is always management and training in place to de-escalate a situation. So when I see trainers doing that whole thing, you're like, yes, it is the antithesis of what most people do. And the what I normally call that is throwing spaghetti at the wall. So people try a thing and I'm like, if it works, awesome. That's great. But if it doesn't work, you're now faced with that video where you're like straight arming a dog and it's biting you and like you're getting bit as the trainer. But I'm like, if did you not take a history because you didn't know it could bite you? If you've taken a history and you've known it could bite you, why are you putting it in a situation where it needs to make a choice, bite you or don't, and it's never made a choice, had impulse control or been taught what a good decision is? And it's never been that's, taught to do any of that under pressure. So but that's because there's a key difference between training and taming, right? Oh, God. And a yeah. lot of our industry paid to tame, right? Yeah. That's where the strong arming play. But then it, let me move forward in your process. And this is really fascinating. So I want to, so we're, we've got this, this practice case study, yodeling. No bully, lost control, learns how to get you to engage with it, starts to slow yes. down to your pace and actually think and track and clock you. Mm -hmm. What's next? So the, that's literally the first five minutes. So I'm going to go. And by the way, this is how I do all assessments. So all assessments, right. I start on a wall because I want to remove as much pressure as possible. If I add in any minor amount of pressure and I see how that dog reacts, I can extrapolate from that what they would react to with a larger amount of pressure. And I have a very concise history. So I'm like, okay. So the first thing I'm going to do is be like, okay, cool. We're going to learn structured interaction. When I get there though, dogs tend to have a really poor relationship with affection. Also, a lot of the dogs that come in, some of them I can't always touch right away. So I'm not going to touch the dog and do the thing. The first thing I've taught them, engagement, engage it like having interest in me pays you and structured interaction, changing your behavior changes my behavior. When they're on the wall, I also begin the criteria for impulse control. So for me, impulse control, the really basic food in hand. You stick food to the side. They go for it. I just close my hand, but they're on a wall. So they can't, even if they're going to keep coming, I just keep my hand closed and I'm like six inches out. They move back to any form of a neutral position. They could be standing. They could be doing a handstand. I don't care. If they're not actively trying to get the food, my hand opens. If they actively try and get the food, my hand closes. If they actively move back and they're like, I don't know what to do, and they look at me, boom, they get paid. Because where that's what I want to start making criteria for impulse control. I don't even want to start really doing impulse control. The amount of impulse control the dog is using in that scenario is incredibly minor. 
But what I'm doing is I'm building super clear criteria so I give them more access to the food, I use better food, or I'm not on the wall. They have criteria. They have an idea of what could be expected. of them. They have an idea of, wow, I'm presented with a choice. I can try and get the food, but every time I do try, man, that's super not successful. But when I try this, bam, I get paid like you wouldn't believe. So if they can do that with very minor amounts of access, then I start upping the level that they want. So the access or the motivator. So I either move closer or I go, hey, I'm going to use a lot higher value stuff or I'm off the wall and I'm doing it in movement, which is super exciting for most dogs. The other thing I want to do and the reason I like structured interaction and I teach structured interaction this way, impulse control and engagement this way, is the whole time that I'm playing hot and cold with structured interaction, I'm not telling them anything. It's self-regulation. Because again, if I'm telling the dog what to do, it is not becoming internal. I want the dog to figure it out. So again, if you free shape something, sometimes it takes a hot minute, but they learn it better, right? I'm free shaping, self-regulate. If they can self-regulate internally and they're not told to do that, they just know, oh my God, as soon as I get excited, the world stops or she moves back or this affects something. Once I free shape self-regulation, I can begin to put them in more excited states and then I just stop. And when I stop, if they're super excited and I stop, because I've done a ton of structured interaction with them initially, they go, oh, wait. Oh, hold on. I got to calm down. They calm down even minor. And I'm like, yes, I pay you because you you've brought yourself down and you've done the thinking. You've thought, wow, wait a minute. When everything stops, I'm supposed to stop. What should I do when I calm down? Boom. I look at you. I get paid because engagement pays. Self-regulation pays. Self-regulation gets you closer to me. Looking at you gets me paid. Boom. We put those together. So then when I'm doing the impulse control, then I layer into crate, I layer it into food, I layer it into toys. I spend maybe the first few sessions with them on the wall, but then engagement, I don't start on the wall, impulse control I do, and then I put them together probably in session like four or five. By session four or five, which is like day two or three, they're typically working on a leash running around and they have enough impulse control and self-regulation by day two or three that if we're bouncing around and we're doing stuff and then I just stop, they bring themselves down. There's no pinballing off of me. And what do you mean by you're, you're stopping your body? You're looking I just stop moving. Like, what is that? I just stop moving and I don't ask anything of them. So if I stop, if you have a dog on a leash that you've never worked with and you just stop moving, they tend to lose interest in you really quickly and they go, if you're not telling me what to do and you're not moving, you're boring and I don't know what to do so I should go do something else. I go, cool, we're playing, we're training and then I just completely stop moving. And if I've done my job, you shouldn't be jumping up on me to get my attention. And you shouldn't be immediately just fucking off and trying to find something else to do that's more interesting. You should be going, okay, whoa, wait, something's up. I should calm down and I'm going to stare at you. And I, if I stare at you and I stare at you longer, I will reactivate you. If I've done my job right by day two, if I'm playing and then I freeze for five to six seconds, they should be able to bring themselves together, stop, and they should stare at me. And if they do that, boom, it starts again. How long are you allowing them to stare at you? The one day two, I'm just like, if you calm yourself down from full on running after me and you calm down and look at me on day two, I don't know, five seconds, four or five seconds, just enough four for this, me to see that you, some dogs will stare at you, but they're in a state of arousal, right? They're staring at you, but they're like, they're doing the vibrate. They're like, ha, they're like Malinois. Some dogs, if they're that dog and they stare at me and stare at me and stare at me for 15 seconds but they're literally in such a high state of arousal 
but then they bring themselves under control and they self-regulate, I'll take half a second. A half a second because what I'm looking for is the self-regulation. The staring at me is a byproduct. But in order for this to be your step, your Mm -hmm. third process, you have to have a tremendous amount of engagement because the where yeah. I could see this up, especially if I were to try to replicate it, would be if I didn't build the engagement in this mm-hmm. uh, consent, cognition-driven space that you build it in, mm-hmm. the dog will just start smelling the environment and reinvesting the environment. So yeah, you really so do have to. We do a mat in the first two days. Basically, all they're going to do is engagement drills for five minutes and then structured interaction. And then engagement drills, and then structured interaction, and then impulse control with their structured interaction, and then engagement maybe with impulse control. And then if I'm going to pressure, what I call pressure test it, which means I set up a scenario where they could fail, which is I bounce around, I'm super fun, and then I completely stop. That's when I see whether or not I've done my job. And if I haven't done my job, I literally I do more engagement and more structured interaction, more engagement. But for the first two days. My criteria is incredibly low. If they're an in-house dog, it's a massive amount of stress to come for a board and train. Oh my God, that's so much. So my criteria is really low. I'm just like, show interest in me. And I'm really clear. I'm like, if you show any interest in me, boom. Most people start with really high criteria. They're like, you need to sit and look at me. And I'm like, oh my God, that's so many, that's, that's so many things. Uh, there, I've started with dogs that will look over their shoulder at me and they're so scared of me that they are six feet at the end of the leash, but they're like, okay, I acknowledge you exist. And I'm like, woo, look at you go, right? So I, I have very low criteria for a lot of these dogs. And because my criteria is super low for them for the first few days, they think they're fucking geniuses. They think they've got this system gamed. They're like, dogs are opportunistic and they are very smart. If they do something that's successful, they do it again and again. But most people try and get them to do so many things at the same time that the criteria is so high. My criteria is so minor. If they're on the wall, most people in that drill would want a sit and they would want calm and they would want not screaming. And they want, I'm like, I want any sign that you're holding your shit together. I don't care if you're sitting. I don't care if you're downing. If you are the loudest dog in the world and you are sitting, but you're, but, You went from jumping and screaming to sitting and barking. I'll come forward. That is an improvement. It is an improvement on what you chose to do. They will choose to do what works for them. So if they choose to do literally anything but what they've shown they'll do in the past, I take that because it's a successive approximation of a choice I want. People really like to use successive approximations to clicker train sit, but they don't use any form of successive approximations, at least not low enough for behavior work. When you're working with a dog that's absolutely terrified, this dog is absolutely terrified and you're giving it no control over its environment. You're putting a ton of criteria on it. I'm like super, super minor criteria. So they meet it and then they meet it again. And then they think they're geniuses and the training is actually fun and achievable because most of the times when they've attempted training, the super excited dogs have been just corrected up the wazoo were completely unsuccessful because they just pinball through choices. And the completely fearful dogs have never been successful enough to meet even the most basic criteria because it's too hard for them. You scale this what you expect of them in the first two days, but my expectation is any interaction with me and any self-regulation, boom, we pay. You didn't get this from your mentor. No, I can tell. You know why I can you know what this tells me just listening? This tells me you 
a lot of time with out of control dogs with different yeah. issues. And first thing you did was teach them how to be with you yeah. uh, and not just be with you. But I mean, you're what you're talking about is forging like trust, like a, a rapport. And we're talking real rapport, not, mm-hmm. yeah, where I've got all the shit. And so now we've got rapport because I've got mm-hmm. all the shit, right? Mm-hmm. Your, it's true rapport. Yeah, um, it's a communication system. It's literally teaching them, it's me and them, how to talk to each other because a lot yeah. of these dogs are super frustrated that they can't communicate what they want clearly, whether they're super scared or super aggressive or super out of control. They're trying to communicate something, but they don't know how to say it. So they're doing it the way that is most successful for them. So if I give them a way that is more successful, man, they latch onto it because they've been just trying to yell at the world the method that has worked for them forever. And it's just been unsuccessful. So if I go even just a little bit, just that, hey, that super minor thing you did, that was successful. They're like, wait a minute, you're listening to me? And I'm like, yes. Because if I base it completely on I have everything, you have nothing, that's typically not going to work super well for owners. If I base it completely on my handling skills are excellent, that's not going to work super well for owners. If I base it completely on it's a communication system driven by a handler or the owner initiating it, that's also not going to work super well for them because owners don't know how to do that. If I base it on they provide information and then the owner responds, owners can do that. I'm like, when the dog does this, boom, this is what you do. If the dog is not doing anything you want, you just stop moving completely. And then they, because I start them with structured interaction, are used to no information means make these choices. Yeah, you're reporting a frame of mind and that's yeah. an easier thing transposed to the owners versus yeah. here are all the tricks and maneuvers and cues that yeah. I've given your dog. Go, no go communication that I've given your dog and then it's up to them to drive the vehicle. Yeah. But you're handing them a fucking scooter. <laughs> so what I'm hearing too also, when you talk about like reactivity and a lot of the issues with dogs, it, it really does come down to the system. It comes down to the variable heart rate. It comes down to the respiratory system. It comes down to areas of the brain that are responsible for dogs being animals, right? The hypothalamus, mm-hmm. the limbic system, all the stuff you're doing is dead center frontal lobe. And so now that you've got the microphone, you've essentially you're moving into the higher criteria and potentially reintroducing triggers. And I'm not sure mm-hmm. we're there yet in the process, but- Talk to me a little bit more about how the free shaping plays the role. As you raise that criteria and you move a little further in the process, what are you rewarding? What are you clicking? What actions are you, are the tried and true? Yes, this dog is in line. I'm going to continue to reward this at the next stage. So this is where I I call everything de-escalation focused training because I'm like, once I teach my base concepts and once I teach them how to communicate with me, as I up the criteria they're going to make mistakes. The problem is not, hey, make the mistake, I correct you. That doesn't work super well, especially if you're talking about a board and train because a lot of owners don't know when to do that. And also a lot of times they do it very unfairly. What we want to do is go, I'm going, every time I set up a training drill, every time I go to train a dog, I go into it knowing that they could make the perfect choice. They could make a myriad of moderate choices and they could make a really horrible choice. So I go into every situation with that really horrible choice in my head first. 
Then all the moderate choices, I consider that a success. And at the very back of my brain, I'm like, maybe they'll make the best choice possible first try, but I doubt it. So if I go into it in reverse where I expect them to go, okay, cool, I may make that horrible choice because that's just the choice I've made for four years. I'm four years old. That's the choice I've made every time I've seen a dog. I go into everything thinking, okay, a reaction is as big as the containment. I don't necessarily want to have them make a choice and correct the shit out of them because they've still been successful 300 times and that's one correction. That doesn't teach them anything. It doesn't teach them not to do that. It just makes the odds a little bit less in their favor. Unless I was going like act of God style correction, in which case different deal, different problem, probably not. But I want to go into a training drill having it well set up. I want everything set up so that if we make a really horrible choice, The containment, the management is in place because the training obviously isn't there yet. Maybe you are muzzle trained. Maybe you are on the wall the first time I bring a dog through so that even if you see a dog on the other side of the training room, instead of me holding the leash, adding more pressure, me holding the leash and you seeing a dog is also a picture that dog would have seen before. The owner would have taken the dog out. They're holding the leash. They see a dog. Dog's thinking pictures. So if I change the picture slightly and I have the dog on the wall, And then I have the dog over there. So if it goes completely bad, the dog's on the wall. So I'm not getting bit. Second off, if the dog's on the wall and doing well, then I can have a front leash and just be pretend, have my pretend leash. And that's fine. But the dog is actually flipped on the wall. They just see a leash with me so that they see the picture, right? They see the picture of me holding the leash. But in reality, the one on the wall will do the work if everything hits the fan. But then I'm going to go, okay, cool. If everything goes horribly, this can be contained with no injury, no input, and it's neutral. It's a neutral form of containment. If the dog is going absolutely bonkers, then we can remove the other stimulus. So for the first two weeks, as I start to up the criteria and move in more stimulus, I also really just, I do that at my facility where I have complete control over the environment because I want to go into every single drill going, if this goes right, awesome. But if this goes wrong, how will I contain this in such a way that the dog does not self-reward out of it or does not add to its history? And how can I put it in a position where that choice is really is actually a really difficult choice to make or it's a slightly different looking situation than before so that they will be more likely to make a choice that is anything other than that? If the, I have a dog that the first thing they do when they see a dog is drag their owner through traffic to try and kill a dog, And I'm working a dog on one side of the room and they bring a dog in and I'm like, I'm hanging out and that dog stops and barks. I'm not correcting yet because the dog is not actively dragging me. It's already making a slightly different choice. So then how would I deescalate it? If I add leash pressure, I'm adding pressure. I'm going to fall back on my engagement. I'm going to make that picture look really similar. I'm going to go back into engagement. They're going to go, oh, the criteria is super low, so I don't have to do a lot of multi-step thinking while I'm in this massive amount of pressure. Okay, cool. Now I'm thinking while this dog is here. Oh, wait, I can think while a dog is present. I can think while the stimulus that I've been going after is present. Okay. So so you're repeating the picture from what activated it same from when you started, right? Activating, activate steps. Let that dog, let's just say, obviously they're on a tieback. If we continue, bark, we lunge, I stop, we still bark, bark, and we're still not picking me, then you're not ready to have that level of stimulus yet. We may have such a strong history with that particular stimulus that we have to work in smaller pieces, but what is more likely than not is we just don't have the muscle 
of engagement and impulse control yet. I try and tell people engagement and impulse control are like muscles. If you reintroduce that stimulus and it's taking more than 30 seconds to work through that, work your engagement, up your motivator. If all of a sudden I've been working with kibble and kibble and then I go to do, you introduce the stimulus and I go, here's chicken and you're not willing to turn around. That tells me I haven't done enough impulse control with moderate arousal things. So everybody that has a problem with dog reactivity and dog aggression wants to work around dogs. I'm like, okay, let's work around ball, tug, cars, bikes, scooters, any another sounds of dogs, maybe a cat, maybe we'll work outside and then inside up all of the other things that would make that slightly more difficult and slight and maybe with multiple people work with this handler and this handler. We're going to make it difficult in 15 other ways before we're ever going to add dogs. Because by the time we get back to dogs, they've seen the picture. Dogs suck at generalizing. So we've generalized it to 15 other things before we've ever gone back to dogs. So by the time they hit dogs, I if they can't start thinking through that in 30 to 60 seconds, I need to build better. I need to build better foundation. Because that's to me, engagement and impulse control of foundation behaviors. If they've hit the end of the leash and I have a better motivator, and that stimulus is not moving because it's one of my dogs, so it's a demo dog. And so it's ignoring this dog completely, and this dog is literally just completely unable to work around it, then I need to go build better impulse control. I need to build better engagement. I need to do another day or two of sessions and then test it out again. And are you going out to stimulating environments, distracting environments, working that engagement there, and then bringing it back to test it? No, I don't. I don't do that. I don't pressure test in new environments until the last seven to ten days of a board and train. And I don't have okay. private clients that I'm working through it. Pressure test engagement. They can pressure test engagement by the second session. I don't have them pressure test impulse control in distracting environments until the third. So about three weeks in. So how do you combat with, I guess, because you're building this whole world in this mm -hmm. language and this language transposes pretty easily with the yes. R's. The dog yes. at this point get the game. Yes. They aren't just doing that. You've got the shit. They're doing it because it's the dance that you do. Yeah. They get something out of it. They activate it. So how do you transpose that to the more contextual drivers, like the dog blasting off on the dog walk? How do you marry that? Once you built this world, how do you bring that world back to the scene of the crime. This is the thing. Yes, we teach engagement and impulse control, but then we also teach engagement and impulse control layered into positions, layered into, then we teach leash skills because leash skills are a combination of engagement. They need to know where to put the attention. Impulse control, they need to know how to walk at your speed, but also ignore other stimulus. And then leash pressure. So at that point, we then teach leash pressure separately. Work walking in a very, like in a, just we call it practice track walking in a very small area. And then in the practice track, I, I say you can't have a good walk everywhere until you have a perfect walk somewhere. So once you have a perfect walk on a practice track with no distractions, you add your distractions into your practice track. You add higher criteria, you add more distracting things, you add more difficult stuff. Maybe you're going to do it on stairs, maybe whatever. And then you start expanding at your practice track. Then we teach the thing the owner wants, which is typically walking, recall, obedience, whatever. And we then take those core concepts, which I consider the foundation of training, and then we take the skill set they want and we put it on top and we integrate them. Then once we've integrated the skill set they want and the, the foundational training skills and the concepts that they need, then we start practicing in higher and higher places, right? I take one of my dogs that isn't going to do anything and I put them on a corner, in a corner of the room on a tie back. So they're just present and breathing. 
but they don't move because again, dogs think in pictures. So the, the picture of that's a dog by itself, not moving with no human. Some dogs are like, is that even the same thing? So first off, now I'm just getting them to learn that they can do all these things in the presence of a dog. But the dog is over there, not moving. It's going to be easiest when the stimulus is non-reactive, not moving. And if they fail epically, I could put the dog in the crate behind a door. And that requires the dog, the training dog to have less impulse control. There's a door in the way. So I can layer up or layer down. So once they can learn, hey, I can walk, I can have impulse control, I can have engagement while that dog is in the corner not moving, then I have me or one of my trainers, we just take the dog and we walk back and forth on the other side of the room and we go, cool, you're going to keep walking, you're going to keep doing your engagement, your obedience, your impulse control, you're going to keep working your dog, but you're going to get your dog to understand you can think this other dog is present. Now we start working close. Now we start doing actual walks, walk-bys, greeting drills, all that. But in session four is typically where I take a demo dog and I start reintegrating the stimulus that is a dog. If you have like dog reactivity, dog aggression, whatever. Because by then you've worked impulse control around a bunch of other things. You've worked your walking skills around some stuff. Now we're putting it all together. Yeah. Now you've got, you've, the way you're layering it in, Yeah. you have not only built the foundation, but you've built the beams, the walls, like you've almost mm. built the entire house in terms of what this dog understands and what's expected and slowing it down or speeding it up, whatever the dog's perceivable issue is. And yeah. then you add the roof, which is the the trigger. But even then you're adding the trigger as low criteria as possible. Dog's not paying attention to you. Dog's not moving. Yeah. And we're at a distance. Yeah. Yeah. First, I have to teach you to think before you can ignore that dog walking past you. You just have to see a dog, bro. Like at 50 feet, this dog, some of these dogs have never seen a dog at 50 feet that if they absolutely lose their mind at, of course that dog's going to react. And my demo dogs are like, yeah. we see criminals, you're fine. Like they go to sleep and they're like, so my behavior, they learn because we teach them that your behavior affects other things. If they go off and that dog doesn't respond, We've taught them the system that they can generalize that. If you bark at me, I don't respond. I stand there. If you stop, we continue. If you bark at my dog doesn't do anything, it goes to sleep. So you stop that because it's not successful. How much dog time would the average client get once you've started introducing the trigger in this process? What's how much, What kind of clock are we burning on them? I know it's every dog is different and there's a different, mm -hmm. but is there a sustained exposure sort of strategy there where you're getting them used to like dogs happen sometimes and they happen at different distances and everything's okay? Are you really putting that much emphasis on it? Or are you more or less, here's the route we want you to go. We want the engagement. We want you to keep moving. This is your door number two. We want you choosing kind of route. So if they're like a fairly low grade reactivity type client, no real aggression in like session Maybe the end of session three, beginning of four, I would probably introduce dogs. By the end of session four with an average dog, I would expect to be like walking. I can make like a square of cones in my training room. I would expect us to be walking in a square and I would have swapped that dog out at least once or twice. So not only would they have seen that dog, they would see maybe two or three of my dogs, but only one dog at a time. So I, I get them to generalize that another dog would also have no reaction. But that also really, that has applications to my environment. So if I can get them to ignore three different dogs and function on the other side of the room with three dogs in my environment, I can reasonably expect that when they go home and they're working their practice track, if they see a dog across the street while they're expanding out of their practice track, one or two dogs in that training session that they do at home from across the street or down the block, they will be able to handle and they will have been familiar with working through because they would have worked through it with mine. 
in the fifth session, which is typically where most clients like that would end up, I would expect to be doing walking drills, have either four dogs out throughout the session, or I would expect to have two to three out at the same time, depending on the dog. And then most clients from there are able to walk in their environments like dog across the street. They can give some space, but their dog can function and and they're not fence fighting. They're not losing their shit every time a dog so much as looks in their direction. From there, though, I always say you're not done. You've, You've just got your dog to functioning. If you don't maintain this, they have a huge history of this behavior where they're massively reactive. Also, it is hard to come by other training dogs. You always, every walk you do, you risk a a bad experience because somebody lets their dog run up on yours or whatever. You can't control that environment. So you need to give them some controlled experience as well to balance out anything that might go poorly when you're just living your life. Some people do two more privates, in which case those are a lot of dogs. And we get to the point where we're walking outside and we'll have dogs running in yards because I have a couple multi-acre run like exercise yards. So we'll do walking drills on the driveway with a dog while a couple dogs run in a field, right? So that there's dogs of different arousal levels. Then I'll be like, cool, come to a group class because I only do group class for people that have done, you have to have done privates or an in-house training program to be accepted into one of my group classes. Once you're in one of my group classes, lovely, we'll just continue layering in more and more dogs. The other thing I used to do, I didn't do this year, was I used to do pack walk once a week where any of my clients could show up and practice around other dogs because we would have anywhere from 15 to 20 dogs like just walk through the town that I'm closest to and we would all go for a little group walk but yeah so like by the fifth session with kind of average amount of reactivity I would expect to be able to be walking around a couple dogs at a fairly close distance the biggest width of my training room is 22 feet so they're typically about 10 feet apart When they pass each other coming at each other head on, they're about eight to 10 feet apart, passing head on. And yeah, by six or seven, I would expect them to be doing greeting drills and stuff. But yeah. Greeting drills. That's what I was about to ask you. Are you looking for dogs that are showing interest in interacting, greeting dogs? I have a different opinion. I know a lot of people, the goal is for dogs to be friends with other dogs, to be friends with other humans. The vast majority of the dogs I work with have a significant enough history that I go, we're going to take that off the table. Your dog has bit six people. If you can stop on the street and have someone ask you directions from six feet away and your dog just chills out next to you and doesn't try and kill them, what a success. I tell everyone I'm not going to make your dog a Labrador. I'm going to make your dog the best version of your dog. That may mean that your dog does not be friends with other people. Now, because of the way we train, we do teach dogs how to meet people. And we always go, if they're, if you move in with a roommate or whatever, we can teach you how to introduce your dog to a person. But your dog has bit six people, bro. It has proven it doesn't want to be friends with other people. Don't go let people pet it. I don't care if they think they like dogs. I don't care if your dog has done everything right. Why are you adding to history for no good reason? What do you do for the capable dog and capable client scenario where right dog, wrong owner, maybe uh, mm-hmm. scenario? I'm pretty blunt, but so I typically will tell people that I'll be like, listen, this is not the dog you wanted and this is not the dog that is well suited for your life. If you are able to follow these rules and I base the rules that I give an owner on the lowest common denominator. If that is the dog, because the dog has a six person by history, then the rules are based on the dog. If conversely, the dog has no bite history but that's just sheer luck. The owner handling the dog means that this dog will get bite history. I will also tell you, 
do not let this dog meet people. You don't know how to read your dog well enough for that to be a good thing. So I frame it really bluntly. I go, if you love your dog enough that you want to keep doing this, even though it's not a great fit, both of you have to compromise. And if you really love your dog and you want to keep your dog, the ideal picture for you is this dog that meets everyone. But your choice is you rehome the dog or you're going to keep this dog and give it the best life you can give it. But that does not involve your want. Your want in this scenario is you want it to be friends with strangers. You are not capable of making that happen safely. So we're going to take it off the table. But that doesn't mean you can't do these other 47 things. That doesn't mean you can't bring it to a sport class. That doesn't mean you can't take it hiking. But you need to make a list of the wants that you want out of your dog and the needs. And typically meeting other people, meeting other dogs is a want. Very good. Yeah. So I started this conversation with, tell me about the first unlock you had. Tell me about the last unlock that you had. Maybe you had scratch your dog or you a different problem that required a different solution. What was your last aha moment? In the last year has just been a world of burnout. And it's the lessons this year haven't come as much from the dogs as it has the owners. And unfortunately, in the last year, we've had some owners that that have taught me that there, there are definitely not just limitations with owners, but I say, okay, here's the rules. You can still have a great life with your dog. You can do this, you can do this, you can do this. These are wants, these are needs. And if you can stick to this, boom, like you can have your dog. You can have your dog. You'll be okay. Just don't do these things. And unfortunately, in the last year, we've had a couple scenarios where that whole scenario of like, I can't love your dog more than you do. Yeah, that's really come up because I'm like, I can't. If you are the person and you say, wow, I'm really into my dog, this is the thing, and and you do all this work to get them on track, and you're like, I absolutely care about my dog so much, I'm willing to do all this work, and I lay down the rule of, listen, you've done all this work, you're at a good spot, but the thing you want to do is bring the dog to the family barbecue. I'm like, okay, that is a want. Every The other 364 days of this dog's life are great. And then the dog does well enough that people go, hey, I now trust my dog. I trust that my dog is who he is. I have some dogs that I personally own, a couple dogs that are dangerous. I trust them. I trust that they will do the thing, even with all the training and all the management and everything, I trust that they will make the decision that they do. They're dogs, man. I trust that my dogs are going to be dogs. And I had a couple scenarios in the last year where even though they had seen what their dogs could do, and then they lived with their dogs from anywhere where from six months to three years, they then went, ah, I just want to bring it to a barbecue. I want to see what happens. Yeah. And a couple of those incidents ended in surgeries. Um, Yep. The right thing to do would be, this is a goal of can you help me with this? Let's roadmap this to have it. And a trainer's mindset, when you talk about you trusting your dogs, I think the same way. I've got five kids and a Belgian Malinois. And when I have these one-off situations happen, like teenagers come over and they want to watch a boxing match, screaming at the television and rough out. Yeah. Trainer brain back online and I bring that Malinois and I turn that into a session to ensure that my dog good experience and there there are no misunderstandings that they can go check kids rough house kids scream at the television i'm okay mm-hmm. but 
outside of that trainer's thinking cap, the dog is still living its life and still experiencing new experiences. And although you might prepare this dog for former yeah. issues with former experiences, that does not mean you're going to have an adverse reaction to a brand new circumstance. And the other thing is, it doesn't mean that you as the owner are going to be able to work them through. So if you're like, I have this Mel, I have these kids, you're like, cool, I'm going to work this dog through it because at any point in that scenario, if that started to go off the rails, you would be able to manage the situation. You would be able to stop the dog, stop the thing, and nothing endlessly bad would come out of it. It would not end in a bite incident. It might end in the dog getting overstimulated and hitting the end of a leaf. It might end in the dog getting overstimulated and not doing the thing it was supposed to do. So you go, cool, we have to back up a second. But you're a trainer and you know that. You also know what is reasonable. If your dog in your scenario can handle five kids being in that house screaming and you know that dog can handle that as a training session, it's an awesome training session. But if you know your dog's limits and actually 10 kids is too much, you're not going to work through 10 kids. You're going to put the dog in a crate for that. You're not going to work through 10 kids. You're going to say, okay, this is too much in this moment. Or you're going to try it recognize that this is not going well and end it before a bad choice is made. You're not going to go, hey, I think I can keep pushing through. The problem is I'm now returning dogs that do think and they are successful. And the reason I teach it the way I do is because dogs suck at generalizing. And this is a way for them to generalize that training with the owner so that when they see a new scenario, they can apply the thinking, not the picture, right? But the problem is then people go, I've worked the dog through this and I've worked the dog through this. So then they'll go, I'm going to put the dog in this scenario. And I'm like, oh no, I, your dog has six bites. I have worked your dog through multi, like a high pressure scenario and it requires X amount of handling skill. It requires level eight handling skill and all the skills your dog currently has. You have level four handling skill and eight months from now, your dog is going to be a little bit out of practice right? Because you're not maintaining it quite at the level I would. That's not a thing I'm going to tell you should do. I'm going to tell you if you end up walking through a park and you see a family barbecue, you have more than enough skill to get yourself out of that scenario. I'm going to tell you if bad things happen and something just comes up, you have a chance of coming through it. But to make the active choice of I've told you any time a stranger is in your house, your particular dog should be on a tieback, on a leash or in a crate. Because while your dog is really excellent 99.9% of the time, the 0.1% of the time that your dog is going to make a bad decision, unfortunately, your dog is 125 pounds and it had a three-person bite history, two of which were stitch-level bites. It was a course. If that scenario goes wrong, it's going to go really wrong. So I said, no, this is the scenario that has to be. And unfortunately, the dog was doing super well and super so we didn't think because the training was going on, the management was going, we skipped a moment of management because we had a lot of faith that the dog would do super well. And when it went bad, she was not able to handle that because the dog was quite large. Do you think that there's a place where owners based on the dog have to graduate to not only trainer handling but a trainer's mindset where the oh, yeah. dog requires There are some dogs that I think require that. And there are some owners that do that anyway. There's some, the owner that typically does that though is not typically the owner that is, it has the dog that needs it. I have some owners that step up and they come in everything from a trainer mindset and their dog really isn't that bad. 
And then I have some dogs that come into it and yet you have to end up with X amount of handling. And I tell everybody to have a mitigation mindset. So if bad things were to happen, how would you mitigate the risk? If you couldn't handle this dog on the leash, how would you mitigate that risk? If the dog was on a tieback, you'd be okay. If the dog is in a crate, you'd be okay. I'm like, you can try and do this, but you need to come at it from a scenario of if you're going to attempt to work through it, how would you mitigate the risk and manage the situation and handle the situation in a way that causes no injury? And that's what most people don't. They go into it with a training mindset of, I'm going to put my dog in this scenario because we're going to train through it. And I'm like, okay, I love that energy. Woo. However, if you go into it with the energy of, I'm going to try and train this through this scenario and it goes wrong, how are you going to handle it then? I think my dog can do it. And I'm like, and that's optimistic as shit. And I love it. But (sighs) even from structured interaction, you know, I said, I set the dog up. So I'm like, you could make the one really good choice. You could make a myriad of moderate choices. You'd make one really shitty choice. I work with dogs that one really shitty choice puts people in hospital though. The one really shitty choice isn't I lunged at a dog. The one really shitty choice isn't I snapped at someone. The one really shitty choice was I put plastic surgery on a five-year-old. So I'm like, when you start playing in, you don't ever go into a scenario without understanding how you will mitigate your risk, right? Like, if everything goes to shit, how will you handle this in a way that the dog, you, and whatever, wherever you are, nobody gets hurt? And frequently I see people going into training scenarios where the only kind of reliant they have is the dog was e-collar trained. So I was told if it doesn't go well, just turn the e-collar up. And I'm like, that's not it. And then other times I see people go, I'm going into the scenario because my dog has met five people or five other dogs. So I think it's going to be fine. And I'm like, okay, but you're letting your dog off leash in a room with five other people and it's bit people. What happens if it doesn't go well? And they're like, I'll catch it. And I'm like, how many people do you think your healer is going to bite before you catch it? Because you chasing it is going to add pressure. And as soon as you add pressure, your dog may not be able to think. If your dog is making bad enough choices that it's biting without the pressure of you chasing it down, how much bad, how many bad choices do you think it's going to make when you start chasing it down? So yes, I think they can, should come at it with a training mindset, but I think they should come at it with a mitigation of risk. Because right. the reality is a lot of pet owners don't want to necessarily do a lot of training. They want to do a lot of doing. They want to go for the walk. They want to take the class. They want to go to the park. They want to go for the hike. They don't want to go to a training session. And I'm like, the nature of life, though, is if you go for a walk and that's a training session. You go to a park or a class, that's a training session. You just can't present it to them like that. But I tell everyone, everything you do, not just for a training session, but for life, how would you mitigate risk? If you're going to bring your dog in the hike, I love that. Let's go. Your dog can do it. But how would you go for a hike safely with your specific dog? You would muzzle it. Awesome. Let's do that. You would pick a specific trail. Let's do that. Awesome. You would bring your dog to the barbecue because it's a one day trip to get there and you're there for two days. You don't want to put your dog in a boarding kennel. Okay, cool. It can go. But what will it do when you get there? Because it's not going to be freewheeling, milling around the middle of the barbecue. Maybe it's there, but it's in a crate. Maybe it's there, but it's on a tie back. And you're just telling people, hey, no, don't touch my dog. Hey, it can be there. That doesn't mean it have to be in the middle of everything. I think your dog can handle going. I just don't think it's going to be super great when drunk Uncle Sal walks up and tries to pet its head. That can't be a thing. So I go into everything going, but what happens if the bad thing happens? Yeah. Going to manufacture the moment before it becomes the worst. Yes. And I manufacture the moment in 53 different ways. And then I go, okay, cool. If this moment occurs, 
you should be okay, but we're also going to have you manufacture the moment 10 different times. And then I want you to show up and practice a little bit so that it's fresh in the dog's head. So you come to class, but you don't manufacture that moment on yourself. But then it gives you the ability to be in scenarios close to that. The dog can go to the barbecue, but it's on a tie back. It's in a pen. It can go with you. It can handle it. It lays there. It chills out. It's fine. But that final piece of, I want my dog to come to the family barbecue and I want my drunk uncle Sal to be able to run up and fall on his head and he'll be fine. I'm like, we can go to the barbecue. We can hang out. We're just going to sit there. That's fine. Maybe some really nice cousins you can teach to meet the dog through structured interaction. But we're not meeting drunk uncle Sal. Yeah. That's where I'm like training is 80% of that. But management is telling drunk uncle Sal to go sit down. I love it. Yeah. Uh, I absolutely love it. Um, This has been great. It's so interesting to hear your point of view. I hear a ton of experience. I hear your words carved by circumstances. I Even you've got me thinking in a management mindset just with the emphasis that you've placed. And a lot of that emphasis I do believe comes from like where you started and, yeah. you know, sanctuary with the worst of the worst with inmate row. I have a running joke that half of my dogs are named after prison theme things because we call this the juvenile detention center for dogs of Alberta. So one of my dogs is named Juvie, one's named Felony. But the thing is, yes, we run it very strict. Yes, everything. But everything is very controlled, but it's controlled so that when I release that control, it is a test. And if it goes poorly, I can lock it down with no injury. We do not. We do. I work with what I consider to be significant dogs. We don't have bites everywhere. I don't have bites on me. My head trainer doesn't have bites on me. That doesn't help anyone, right? And I don't need to watch the dog bite me to know it will bite. When I was working by myself, you either learn how to manage it with a significant dog in a way that is safe or you're going to get seriously hurt, not just moderately hurt. So that came out of necessity. And from that necessity, I went, why isn't this just a thing? I'm by myself. This dog could kill me. There has to be another thing in place that's going to stop this dog besides, oh, I think I'm just a badass with my handling skills. Like that, that works until it doesn't. And no. So would you say that your, cause your social media is mm-hmm. pretty large, right? Yeah. Would you say that lightened the extreme behavior or served as a, a lead generation for even more gnarly dogs? Cause in your, so, on your social media, you're hilarious and oh, yeah. you have a, a people that they really like you. They genuinely tune in. They love what you're going to say, which is. Which is a breath of fresh air comparative to every other dog trainer TikTok that has ever existed, <laughs> right? You live the person of, hey, guys, try not to take yourself too seriously. Here's something funny. Yeah. And yeah. That, so has that changed your business at all with that kind of that followership or people like, oh, my God, beta trains, train my dog. And they're sending you their beautiful puppy. <laughs> uh, no, if anything, it has gotten worse, which is really funny because the TikTok is the biggest one I have. Right. It's the biggest social media. And of that, I don't train dogs on TikTok. Somebody I put up, I did a live the other week because I was bored. And I actually did a live of me training dogs and someone commented on it was like, oh, my God, I followed you for two and a half years. I've never seen you train a dog. And that's because on TikTok, I actually put none of me training. It's weird because I do try and come at stuff from a really light thing on TikTok and I don't train a lot of dogs on TikTok. And yet the requests I get from people that follow me on TikTok and from people in the comments are like, 
so my dogs killed all these things like my like the comments and the people that send us emails and stuff they're like hey this is really a significant problem and you seem to deal with that how do i deal with that and i'm like how did you get that from littermate syndrome what okay so i don't i it, it has not made it less it has if anything made it more i put training on other platforms but they're all really small and so that's yeah it's just it's really weird i definitely get a lot of significant stuff from tiktok i think one of the reasons people when i say hey i do significant stuff i never put videos up of me working significant dogs one because i have a big problem with before and afters it's like a moral thing two is okay so you've just heard how i work a dog zero parts of that at the start involve me straight arming a dog that tries to eat me It's not exactly solidly entertaining. Unless you're a super dog nerd, you don't know what you're watching. If you're a super dog nerd, man, we've watched some solid 20, 30 minute videos of our work before here because we're like, ah, we know what we're watching and we know what we were waiting for and we're trying to nitpick things. But if you're like on TikTok, watching structured interaction really isn't a thing that most dog owners understand or are there to see. And I'm like, oh, no, seriously, this dog bit six people, including a cop, a peace officer and a child and put stitches in another trainer. This is it chilling out on a wall. It's day one. And they're like, oh, you this isn't there's every dude, bro, that thinks he's a trainer and their brother is going to comment and not um, be like, no, he's not serious. And I'm like, I don't need to fight you about it, bro. The dog is in my house or the dog is in my training facility. You can tell me it's not significant all you want. I don't know, come here and pet it. So that's why I'm also like, I don't put a lot of that stuff up. But I think sometimes when I talk about stuff and I'm like making light of it, people get the impression that I don't need to take myself very seriously with a lot of things. Because in this scenario, when I'm working a dog that is significant, I am very serious. I am very serious. I am very clear. I I think you probably hit the nail on the head. You can tell your stuff in the way... In the matter-of-fact communication style and more comical and casual yeah. communication style, whereas a lot of people, like they are, you can hear them really trying to force a message or bring yeah. you this thing that just figured out. Or people are just, you can always hear when someone is like, and this, and I know this, versus... Yeah. I tell you know, people, also- you need to use multi-syllabic words to get your point across. Yeah. First off, there's that whole there's that whole quote that is, if you can't explain something to a five-year-old, you don't really know it. If you, it, like, sometimes dog training exists in a vacuum, and I'm a more extreme version of that. I live in the woods. I didn't talk to a lot of other trainers for the first few years. So I'm not exactly looking for a lot of external validation over here. I'm good in the woods. But the problem is a lot of people do. Training is a really solo thing. So people are like, am I doing it? Do people like me? Do I know what I'm doing? And to get around that, they go on social media and they use all the big words and they put up the flashy video where they're trying to straight arm a dog and they're setting stuff up. And I'm like, okay, like they're trying to get something from that experience. And I'm like, I don't, I just don't need that. I'm good. Everybody always asks me if I go into a trial because I do trial with my dogs and my stress. People go, hey, if you're making social media, are you stressed making good content? And I'm like, no, the most stressful thing I do is I intake a dog and I'm on a timeline. I have anywhere from four to six weeks and four to six weeks from now, I don't need to talk about my work. I need to show my work. This owner knows who their dog is. They have seen what their dog has done. They have been there for the last three bite attacks. They've been there to pry the dead animal out of the dog's mouth. Four to six weeks from now, I'm going to walk this dog by a cat. 
if I can talk with all the syllabic words in the fucking world, that doesn't do anything if I can't uh, teach the dog that. And you know I, what? I, Dogs I, really suck at language. They don't care how many syllables is in the word. I think that there's a fork in the road yeah. in the industry. Yes. And that is why you're here. If you are truly about the dog and you think about this stuff all the time and you obsess over it and you problem solve and you are just really engaged with what you're doing, there's a passion behind it, then you don't spend every moment trying to capitalize on the smallest feats that you perform. And the other yeah. route where it's all about delivery, it's all about capitalizing, it's all about yeah. making money off of what you're doing with spectacle. Oh, to this industry that's very MLM. Like it's very unregulated, it's very MLM, and it that makes the trainer feel really good. The other part of it is that lots of people want to use social media. They think that a good social media, a flashy social media where like they're doing all this extreme shit is how they're going to get a client yeah so i tell people from the very beginning i literally i was doing another job i had a full-time job the reason people hired me was because i trained their sister's dog well. they met a yeah. dog that i trained and they were like oh no you should call this girl you know i they'd meet a dog and be like oh who trained your dog i'm like good work gets more clients knowing your yeah. job and being really good at your job I suck at social media. I suck at advertising and marketing. Not exactly my strong suit, but I'm, I'm an <laughs> I okay suck. dog trainer. So I'm like, I lean into that. And I'm like, you, you may or may not get an email back from me within two days or seven, but I can train the shit out of your dog. So you've been through five trainers. Do you want to drive half an hour out of the city and deal with my ass not emailing you frequently? Or do you want to try four more trainers that have great fucking pictures on Instagram and absolutely are going to get torn up by your dog? A lot of trainers have to unplug from a very busy mindset, a very busy life, a very busy business yeah. to plug in social media. And that's yeah. where you aren't as fully plugged in. And that, But I can see that. So like when I'm looking to choose trainers to interview, I'm not looking trainers that can't come off the language to save their life that yeah, want to be learning theory and everything has to be in the training bible in order to have a conversation with them but i'm looking for people that are clearly active in behavior clearly know what they're doing and love this stuff because that's where these yeah. conversations be really fun and hearing because today was really interesting like it really I loved listening to trainers and hearing how they approach things differently and where they place their emphasis and their priorities and their sequences of events in their training plan yeah. because hey, thousands of dogs led to that. And that's where it's really inspiring. This was great. You're awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for chatting with me. You're super cool. I actually really enjoyed this. 